Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syria and like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, everyone says, Glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as King forever. The Lord will give strength to His people. The Lord will bless His people with peace. Amen. Father, we thank You for this, Your Word, and we pray that as we uh, look at it, that the responses of our heart would be sanctified by Your Spirit and would be acceptable in Your sight. Through Christ uh, we pray. Amen. may be seated. In the last few weeks, I've been entering into some debates with some uh, evolutionists, and there have been a couple of Christian evolutionists who have just been embarrassed by Scripture being introduced into this topic, and they keep insisting, you've got to keep God out of science. Uh, God deals with things invisible and heaven and stuff like that, but science deals with this material world that we can... Uh, see, and you really cannot uh, apply the laws of physics to Christianity. Uh, One of them said this, and this is a quote from his email, science tries to look at the natural world as completely natural, this is a Christian talking, okay, as completely natural, as a perfectly integrated system of laws in which the spiritual concepts of separation, sin and death simply have no meaning as such. In other words, he's saying science just deals with a box over here and just don't bring God into that. And um, we've been debating back and forth on some of these issues, but there was one quote from Cornelius Van Til I thought was quite apropos. Uh, He said, Since God created all things by, for, and through Christ, Colossians 1.16, and since He sustains all things, Colossians 1.17, it would be impossible to interpret any fact without a basic falsification unless it be regarded in its relation to God the Creator and to Christ the Redeemer. He's saying you can't look at anything in this world apart from God and apart from Christ without misinterpreting it. You've got to bring God and Christ into everything. And of course, as Uh, revealed in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are our paradigm, the glasses through which we're supposed to look at the world. If you've got a a, um, a, a science in which God can have no part, you've got an atheistic science, a godless science. But it's not just uh, non-Christians who have this problem. Uh, It's Christians many times who do this. Even creationist Christians can sometimes isolate God from one part of their lives. We have what uh, Francis Schaeffer complained about as the sacred-secular dichotomy. And this is where Christians 
don't bring God to bear in certain areas of their lives. Oh, sure, they love God over here, but there's certain boxes that they exclude God from. And he's saying one part of your life is sacred, one part of your life is secular, and that ought not to be. Every part of our life needs to be completely sacred, devoted to God. Um, Aaron knows that I've been uh, working with him and trying to encourage him how to apply the Bible to art and the art to Bible, every area of life being under the Lord God. And so I've titled this sermon, Coram Deo, and by now you ought to know what that means, before the face of God. It's how we can learn to worship God in every area of life, not just on Sunday morning, but worshiping God in every area of life. And there's three points. First, a call to worship in verses 1 through 2, then the motivation for worship in verses 3 through 9, and then the goal of worship in verses 10 through uh, 11. And I think everybody's familiar with the first two verses here. They're wonderful, uh, wonderful verses uh, that are many times spoken from the pulpit in preparing people for worship. It says, Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to His name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Now, what I want to point out is when David originally gave that call to worship, uh, he wasn't sitting in the synagogue uh, or in the temple. Uh, He wasn't probably even on a Sabbath day calling people to worship. He was out in the field and was caught in a tremendous thunderstorm, which many commentators believe was accompanied by a tornado that was ripping through that territory. And he was so amazed and stood in such awe of what was going around that the impulse of his heart was to call other people to worship, but there wasn't anybody else around, so he calls the angels to worship God. And that's what O Mighty Ones is a reference to. In the Hebrew, uh, B'nai Elim refers to the angels. So uh, this rainstorm was a call to worship. And the point is that we're not just called to worship on Sunday. The whole of our lives are called to worship. And he finds calls to worship everywhere. Basically, worship is glorifying God in everything that we do. Now, there's formal worship and there's informal worship, but we need to recognize that every aspect of our lives needs to be done to the glory of God. Now, unfortunately, the only call to worship many Christians hear is the call to worship that's read from behind this pulpit here. And even there, they don't respond many times as full-heartedly as they wish that they could. They wonder, why am I so distracted? Why do I have such a hard time giving to God the glory uh, that He deserves? Uh, About 30 years ago, I joined Faith Presbyterian Church up in Canada. And uh, there was two sweet old ladies who were a part of that church. But one of the hang-ups they had is that we met in the Holiday Inn, and it wasn't nearly as nice as this, But every Sunday, without fail, they complained. When are we going to get a real church? You know, we don't feel like we can worship here. Without the atmosphere of the kind of churches they were used to, they felt like worship was dead. And I was not very sympathetic. I was newly reformed, and my heart was just screaming worship to God because I was loving the sovereignty of God and all of these new doctrines. And every Sunday, I was so excited to give God the worship And I was cynically thinking, oh, yeah, pity the poor Christians in the book of Acts, you know, who didn't have churches to worship in. They had to meet in living rooms and out in the open. And later on, they had to meet in the catacombs. 
And I thought, you know, for that matter, pity the poor people in most of the world. You know, China and all throughout Asia and uh, amongst the Islamic nations. These guys have to be in hiding uh, and they don't have what we think of as church buildings, which means every one of them has distractions from worship, at least what we consider of as distractions from being able to give to God the kind of worship that we would like to see. I remember sitting on the ground in uh, a church in Ethiopia. What we'd do is we'd just squat. I'm not going to pretend to do it here because I won't get up again. <laughs> uh, but uh, we'd have our knees up to our chest, you know, and just packed in there. And for my little heart, uh, I was quite distracted. I don't think I was even regenerate when I was a kid, but... Uh, I'd be looking at all kinds of things. You'd see the bug crawling up, you know, the back of the shirt of somebody three uh, people away, and there'd be a a worm, and I'd wonder if this worm was uh, going to be crawling onto somebody. uh, And then a chicken would come through, and somebody would swat at it, and it would fly off with a squawk, and all kinds of interesting stuff would happen in those uh, services. Not quite as boring for the kids uh, there as it is in our church here. (laughs) But I remember uh, thinking many times, oh yeah, what is the pastor talking about? What is it we're doing? I was very easily distracted, but the reason for that is my heart had never been gripped by the Holy Spirit and drawn into worship. And we can be in uh, situations where we have none of the distractions. We're in our study all by ourselves and our heart is still not given to worship, even though the distractions have been taken Aside, So if we can think, what is it that distracts me from worship on Sunday morning? What is it that draws my heart into worship? It'll help us to evaluate whether we really are living quorum Deo, uh, living our whole lives to God's uh, glory, um, or whether it's really an emotionalism that's uh, drawing us, if it's externals that are drawing us. I think one of the best things that happened to me was when I went to a church where... We sang a cappella. It wasn't the greatest singing, the greatest music, the greatest preaching. Uh, The preacher was trained to stare up like this at the corner, never let his eyes deviate from that corner the whole time he was talking. He was looking like this in a monotone voice. It was uh, an amazing scene to behold. And uh, he had it timed down to 45 minutes to the second. He would fill it up whether he had anything to say or not. To the second. Um, amazing thing. But you know, the people in that church really did have hearts that were gripped by worship. Very staid people, but you could see the tears coming down their faces as they were uh, just overwhelmed with the goodness of God. <clears throat> anyway, in America, what we try to do is we try to shut out the world so that we can tune into God. And I think what we're doing is we're practicing a sacred-secular dichotomy. If we can just get the world out of here, then we can focus in on God. And so we close our eyes. I've often wondered, why do we close our eyes when we, when we pray? People say, well, it's to get rid of distractions. I would posit that closing our eyes in prayer really came out of pietism. What we're doing is we're trying to shut out the works of God so that we can see God working, which is a contradiction. We're we're trying to get rid of all of these distractions so we can focus on God. But is God not all around us? I think the closing of our eyes in prayer, in fact, I may just quit closing my eyes in prayer from here on in. 
I really think that if we can get over the idea that babies crying and atmosphere and other things like this are distractions from worship, we're going to be forced to focus on the things that really draw our heart to worship in a spiritual way. But anyway, you can do what you want. You can close your eyes if it's, if it's distracting. But that's what we tend to do in America. We try to create an atmosphere where all of the distractions are removed and people feel the only way I could be worshiping is if I've got a particular context and I believe it's a very artificial context that has been created. Now, you might try this sometime just as an experiment and it will, it, it will really make some of your friends nervous. But um, w- when you're talking uh, and it's an appropriate moment to just be offering up uh, a prayer for, uh, for wisdom or a prayer of thanksgiving to God, just start praying to God with your eyes open out loud and see what they do. I think a lot of people will get really embarrassed. I've been doing it. Some of you guys are starting to get used to the fact that I will just start praying, um, you know, for, for lunch or for other things. But what's going on in people's minds is that the only time we can include God in a conversation or prayer in a conversation is when we're away from what's normal into what is not normal. And God has got to be a normal part of our lives. David had learned to tune into God wherever he was. Seeing this thunderstorm caused his heart to well up in worship. And everything that he saw caused him to do that. Sometime read Psalm 104. It's another fantastic worship psalm. Uh, David sees a bird's nest. And it causes him to worship God. Why? Because he sees the wisdom of God in that bird and how it crafts that nest. And then he, he goes on and he talks about a cow giving birth and the deers up in the field and the conies in their caves. And he talks about the lions eating their food and the, the sun and the moon and the stars. Everything in creation was shouting the glory of God and it was drawing his heart out to worship, not just on Sundays, it was drawing his heart out to worship throughout the week. I think if we can get to the place where we're able to truly make How Great Thou Art, which we're going to be singing at the end of the service, How Great Thou Art, a testimony, that it doesn't matter whether we're walking through a meadow. And I I grant you, there are different modes of worship that people have. Some people are really drawn into worship through the intellectual. Uh, I tend to be that way. Uh, I start uh, reading theology and reading the Scripture. Man, it causes my heart to just exult in the Lord. And there's other people... Uh, who really do have best worship when they're all by themselves. So I'm not knocking getting away by yourself because getting into a prayer closet all by yourself can be a, a great aid to worship. There's other people whose strength in worship is when they're walking in the field. And so this is going to be the most natural thing in the world. You're going to say, well, yeah, duh. Uh, of course, this is uh, every time I walk in the field, I, I worship. But we need to get used to thinking of of many different ways in which we can approach the Lord so that every area of life becomes an excuse or a reason to worship. Now, this leads to the second point, and that is the motivation for worship. We've had the call to worship uh, on uh, uh, Sundays through Saturday all week long. Then the motivation for worship is that God is indeed present. It's not just a theology about presence, but God is present in everything. David, uh, in this psalm, mentions the, the name of God in every verse. 
And I think the reason he's wanting to do that is he does not want us to miss the fact that it's God who thunders through the storms. It is God who tears those oak trees apart. It's God who's causing this tornado to come and is shaking the ground, just like a freight train coming through there. He's the one that leaves this path of destruction in the aftermath of that storm. And I wish I could uh, read the Hebrew like my professor in seminary could read the Hebrew. Uh, One time he read through the Hebrew on this and he says, this is onomatopoeic, uh, which means it's using sounds to try to convey meanings. And he's just marvelous. I mean, he reads uh, Hebrew just as well, even the ancient uh, handwritten Hebrew, just as easily as I read English. And it just sent shivers up my spine as this guy would read this Hebrew and you're following along and realizing how close the sounds match the meaning that he's trying to give. I'll just try to give you a little bit of an idea of how it works. But um, the voice of the Lord is repeated over and over, and it's, it's kind of the, the sound of thunder off in the distance. Kol Yahweh, Kol Yahweh, Kol Yahweh. You just keep hearing this uh, in uh, different sequences in the, in, in the psalm. And when it's put in conjunction with other words, it gives the feel of a storm coming in, coming overhead, and then dissipating into the east. In verse 3, the storm is brewing out over the, uh, the Mediterranean, and the language that you hear is just a soft rumble, kind of a rumble a sound, a little bit of reverb. Then in verse 4, as the storm moves inland, there's a much sharper sound of thunder through onomatopoeia. Uh, uh, first phrase shows the crash, kol Yahweh it's almost like a crash. And then the next phrase, the reverb, kol Yahweh Bahador, just a little bit softer. And then in verse 5, you've got some just awesome language. I'll just give you one little phrase to, to show you. For example, the, the cedar is breaking apart, being onomatopoeic. Shover artsim, Yahweh shover. It's a kind of a ripping. He could do it much better than I could, my professor. But it's almost like a ripping or a shredding sound Uh, that's on there as these trees are being ripped apart. And as you go through verses 6 through 9, what you you see is the storms out in the Mediterranean. It's coming overhead, and then it's going on to the first mountain range, uh, or Mount Lebanon is, then on to Syrian, and then on to the steppes of, of Kadesh. And the reason that David is using these words, I think there's a poetic aspect where God's trying to grab our emotions uh, there, there, there is an emotional element. He's trying to, to give a feel for the storm, but he is also trying to make it crystal clear that God is the one who made every branch and every leaf to fall, and he's the one that controls which direction the tornado is going to be going. He's in control of all of that. Now, we live in an age of science where it's really hard for people to believe this, even Christians. Uh, we have this tendency to think that, you know, the rain and the, the snow and insects and all of those types of things, yeah, God made them, but does He really invest them with meaning? In fact, I've had Reformed Christians tell me this. They've said, well, the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, which means it's indiscriminate, which means it has no meaning. I mean, they've actually said this. And to me, that just takes all hope, all personalism out of the providence of God. It takes what's exciting to me out of the providence of God. Now, I grant you, God does have certain ways in which He wants certain regions to be deserts and other regions to be luxuriant areas. 
But he also indicates that he is the one who brings the storms and the rains and the droughts and all of those types of things, and he does so for a purpose. He doesn't just wind up a clock and say, okay, we're going to set certain laws in motion and some people are going to be hurt by certain laws, but it's just cause and effect universe and I'm going to take my hands off of it. Uh, God does not say that. Instead, it indicates he personally is orchestrating every detail with a purpose and a goal in mind. So let me read again verses 3 through 9. I'm not going to read it in the Hebrew. My Hebrew is really uh, bad right now. But I'm going to read it for you in the English. And try to keep this in mind. God's control of every aspect. The voice of the Lord. And this is Yahweh. The voice of Yahweh is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. Yahweh is over many waters. The voice of Yahweh is powerful. The voice of Yahweh is full of majesty. The voice of Yahweh breaks the cedars. Yes, Yahweh splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of Yahweh divides the flames of fire. The voice of Yahweh shakes the wilderness. Yahweh shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of Yahweh makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in His temple, everyone says glory. At least the angels, you know, are exuberant over what God is doing in this storm, even if the scientists are blind to it. And they're just studying all the details, you know, as if it's just a mechanistic universe. No, the angels, they see God's hand in it, and that's what causes them to give glory uh, to the Lord. And so it's not just during special times like the Exodus or the conquest of Canaan or when Jonah uh, was in that storm that God is controlling the weather patterns for special purposes. There is what Gary North calls a cosmic personalism. A cosmic personalism. What he means by that is there is no part of this cosmos, this universe, that is not invested with meaning because God is personally present, directing it for the good of His people and for His glory. It all has meaning. In Zechariah chapter 2, he says, God controls every wind that blows just as surely as He controls the nations for a purpose. In uh, Revelation 7 verse 1, it says that He commands certain angels... Uh, to cause certain winds to blow or not to blow. Now, how angels are involved in that, I don't know, but that's what he says there. In 1 Samuel 12, verses 19 through 18, it says that God sent the rain that destroyed the crops because they asked for a king. And Samuel tells them, hey, this is why your crops were destroyed, and then they mourn because they catch the connection. Uh, they may have been oblivious to that apart from Samuel's words unless they had been sensitive. Lord, are you bringing discipline to my life? Why is it that my finances have failed? Why is it that our cops have been destroyed? Is, it, is there something we need to repent about? But they should have been able to come to that conclusion because the law of God had already said that this is the way it would be. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 11, as well as Deuteronomy 28, it indicates that throughout Israel's history... And even when they were in captivity, God was going to control things like pests and mildew and uh, weather patterns and hemorrhoids and itch and all kinds of things as judgments as well as rewards in their lives. Oh yeah, there's good things that he talks about as rewards. He doesn't give us rewards uh, with the bad things. But when God tells Job about his personal hand in all aspects of creation, Job repents of his whining and complaining. And suddenly he catches it and he worships God. 
his heart is just drawn out to the Lord. So I think you can see why in verse 9, the immediate response of praise from the angels in his temple, everyone says glory. The angels are living before the face of God. It's obvious to them that God is working all things according to the counsel of His will. We have a hard time living Coram Deo. You know, we don't see spiritually like the angels do. We have a hard time. Everyone in God's heavenly temple cries glory because they see God's hand at work. They see His wisdom, His power, His majesty, His sovereignty that Steve was talking about earlier. They see that there is no such thing as chance in God's world. In Proverbs it says, when you cast the, the, the dice in the Monopoly game, now you can't control God with dice. You know, he's not going to say, okay, just cast the dice and I'll do whatever you want me to do. You can't control him, but every time the dice is cast, it's from the Lord. There is no such thing as chance, is, is what he is saying. And so if the thunderstorm elicits a glory from heaven, it ought to elicit a glory, hallelujah, from God's people. Amen? I mean, it's something that ought to grip our hearts. Or, if there's a sense of judgment, Lord, um, I recognize that there's been sin in my life. That's why things are not going well. It ought to elicit repentance on our part. This is one of the things I just love about the Puritans. You cannot read very far in the Puritan writings without realizing they invested so much meaning in God's providence. Uh, And it's one of the reasons why modern Arminian Christianity has a hard time appreciating the Puritans. I've read a number of cases where they think, you know, it's kind of superstitious what the Puritans were doing. They're always repenting when there's a a drought or some other thing coming along and they're, they're treating this universe around them as if it's personally related to them. It's kind of a superstitious idea. Well, it's not superstition. Uh, they were the true scientists, the true, truly wise people. And uh, these other scientists that I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon are what the Bible would call science falsely so-called. True learning that excludes, uh, does, never excludes God. Any science that excludes God is by definition false. Okay? God has got to be part and parcel of all, uh, of all our in, interpretation. Now, I've got a, another book I'd like to recommend. It's actually been around for quite a while. It's called The Light and the Glory. How many people here have read The Light and the Glory? Oh, a bunch of you have. Uh, by Peter Marshall and, and David Manuel. It's pretty fun reading, but it gives a theological interpretation of providence uh, from the time of Christopher Columbus and, and on through the Pilgrims and the Puritans and later on in American history. And it's just really neat how they weave some of these providential events for the founding uh, of this nation. By the way, this is one of the reasons, um, there's many reasons why we're having Providential History Festival at the Strategic Air and Space Museum. But I want to get away from the idea that providential history has to be restricted to a church building somehow. Or that uh, you've got to be giving Bible history in order to have providential history. I hope we have some entries, you know, from from China and from other histories that aren't in the Bible so that we can be communicating to people that every aspect of history is under God's control, is invested with meaning. That's what providential history is about. It's a kind of history, when you read it, you get excited. Your heart says glory because you can see God is in it. That's the kind of writing that uh, Peter Marshall and David Manuel uh, were doing. 
So back to the Puritans. One of the things that really impressed me about that is they saw God's hand in the Indians that came to save them, the Indians that fought against them. They saw God's hand in the drought. They saw God's hand in plagues that came as well as in uh, the times when, when they were healthy and they had gentle rains. And when you see all of those woven together like that, it makes history come alive. And I hope we're entering into an age where more and more providential histories are going to be read, where you cannot read that book without crying out, glory uh, to the God uh, of history. By the way, uh, because those Puritans saw God's hand in everything, their, their hearts were led to worship six days a week. It was the most natural thing for them to have gutsy and full-hearted worship on Sundays. Uh, these guys would, would weep and rejoice, again, in a kind of staid Presbyterian way, but uh, they really loved their Lord because they saw God present in everything uh, that, they, that they faced, a personal presence. Okay, the psalm ends with a twofold goal of worship. Give God glory and receive blessing from God. Now, the first one is an absolute prerequisite for the second one. You don't receive from the Lord blessing until you have first abandoned yourself and say, Lord, I'm here for you. I want to give to you. I want to rejoice your heart. I want to refresh your heart. And so, uh, take a look at the last uh, verse, well, actually, last phrase of verse 9. It says, in his temple, everyone says glory. That should be our desire. Glory to you, Lord, not glory to me. But then uh, he says, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood and the Lord sits as king forever. Okay, this is worship that focuses upon God, that submits to God, sees his kingship overall. That's the purpose of worship. It's to ascribe the glory to the Lord. He does not want to share his glory with anybody else. He, won't, he will not share his glory with the preacher. He will not share His glory with the drummer or with the pianist. He wants the glory. And when He calls us to worship on Tuesday, He will not share His glory with chance. He will not share His glory even with the creation that He has made. He wants the glory in everything. And our awe at the power of nature ought to be translated into an awe at the power and majesty of God. I don't know any pagan that does not stand in awe at a tornado. I think, uh, you know, if you experience a tornado, you just stand in awe at the power that is unleashed there. But the difference that should exist between a believer and an unbeliever is where the awe is directed. Is the awe directed toward creation or is the awe directed toward God? In Romans chapter 1, he blasts the pagans because instead of glorifying God, they worship and serve the creature. And so, if your preoccupation on Sunday through, I mean, Monday through Saturday is with uh, the creation rather than with the Creator, you still don't have what you need for your heart to be able to do what God made you to do. And the same is true on Sunday morning. If you're more preoccupied with the things that accompany creation, you're worshiping the creature, the creation, rather than the Creator, uh, that again, you're going to be lacking what it takes to walk Coram Deo. Walking Coram Deo uh, is going to make you not fuss so much with the distractions that are around you because your focus is going to be so intent upon the God uh, who made you. 
Now, having said all of that, having said that you're not going to enter into the blessing of verse 11 unless you have the attitude of verse 10 and the last part of verse 9, there is a blessing that God gives to those who just full-heartedly and with abandon say, Lord, I want to refresh your heart. I'm here to serve you. I delight in you. Then it ends by saying God delights in delighting His people. He refreshes them. So look at the last uh, verse. The Lord will give strength to His people... The Lord will bless His people with peace. Now, that's one of the reasons for worship. Okay, we do give to God, but He says, when your focus is not on receiving, but it's on giving, God will pour back refreshment after refreshment, strength after strength, power into your life. So here's the question. Why is it that we do not many times come away from a worship service with that strength of the Lord? We come away from worship service feeling, oh, well, that wasn't really something that was meaningful to me, that was refreshing to me. Why is it that that happens? Worship committees, they're always trying to strategize what new things can we bring in? How can we change the atmosphere uh, so that people really come away being blessed? See, I think this psalm really gives us the hint of what's going on. If we don't find God present in the storm, it's very unlikely we'll find Him present in the pew. We might get some emotional lift, but we won't find God. Uh, if our, uh, our God is not the center of our lives six days a week, it's very unlikely that He will fill our lives one day a week. Calvin summarized the entire Christian life with the phrase, Coram Deo, before the face of God. He's saying, there should not be a minute of any day in which you are not living that life in the face of God, as if He were right there uh, before you, which He is. So here's my conclusion. There's no need to blot out reality in worship. No need to close your eyes in worship. That's like saying, I must blot out all the works of God in order to experience God working. It's a contradiction. And like I mentioned earlier, I have found myself with every distraction removed, perfect atmosphere. You can even have soft music playing in the background. You can just have the perfect environment, and I'm still not drawn into worship. What's the problem? It's not the atmosphere, it's my heart. My heart has not been gripped by the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, I have had times of worship out in China when my legs are killing me because of how cramped we are, all packed in there. But the power of God's Spirit is so powerful there, is so present, I can't help but worship God. See, that's what should be the desire of this congregation, that God would be the sun around which the planets of our lives are orbiting. In Psalm 104, David, in effect, sings what we're going to be singing in this hymn in a couple of minutes. And I'm just going to read one verse. O Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the works Thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the mighty thunder, Thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. Then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art, how great Thou art. May each one of us learn to live Coram Deo. Amen. Father, we thank You. Thank You. Thank You so much for the reminders of Your Word. Father, these are things that every one of us knows, but we need to be reminded of. And uh, I pray that each one of us in this coming week would 
learn to walk and live a quorum Deo, that we would uh, see you just as powerfully present in the laboratory as we uh, see you uh, present when you're working a healing in someone's life. Uh, Father, may we read history with, with a, uh, a sense and a, a delight in your providential control over all things in life. May our hearts learn to worship uh, seven days a week. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.